Hello, I'm Annie Ridout, author, journalist, poet and host of this podcast, Home. Today I'm speaking to Marcel Farrell, the author of Uprooting, From the Caribbean to the Countryside, Finding Home in an English Country Garden, a beautiful book for which she won the Nan Shepherd Prize. Marcel shares openly about moving from Trinidad to England to study and then falling in love with an Englishman and settling here. In today's episode of Home, Marcel and I talk about her roots, physical home, as well as people as home, and the lessons she is hoping to teach her children about creating a sense of belonging. Welcome, Marcel, to this podcast, Home. I've just finished your book. I came across you at a beautiful talk that you did with Julia Samuels in Froome and bought your book and started reading it and reading parts out to my children. And it's just so beautiful. And my daughter said to me at one point, why have you got so many of the pages turned over in that book? And it was because I was obsessively marking them um, for myself, but also so that we could uh, talk about lots of parts of your book today. Thank you. That's so lovely to hear. Thank you so much. First, I would love to hear um, about where you were born and raised. Sure, yes. I was born and brought up in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean and lived there until I was 19. Um, So the first half or slightly less than half now, actually, of my life. And Extended family living is still quite common in Trinidad, or certainly was when I was a child. And my parents were young and in university when I came along. Um, I was a little bit of a surprise. And we lived with my grandmother, my maternal grandparents, for the first eight or so years of my life. And it was a really busy family household to be part of. My mum was one of nine she was one of the eldest so I had lots of teenage aunts and uncles around Mm -hmm. um my youngest aunt was 10 I think when I was born so I have memories of playing with her in the garden um both of us being in a paddling pool so it's sort of kind of a vivid memory that I have in um my grandma's back backyard as we call it at home (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have the same connotation as a yard here very much back garden but you know yeah. um so many of my memories from that bit of my childhood are from being outside actually from being in my grandma's garden um she used to have these lovely hedges that I would kind of you know I had dens inside of them and I would make fairy potions and she had lots of fruit trees in the backyard and I would be I would climb up there and sit in the kind of branches and eat the mangoes and yeah it it was just I have very few memories being inside although I'm sure I must have spent Mm -hmm. time in the house and then when I was about eight or nine um my parents had kind of worked and saved up enough and we kind of moved out into our own place um, initially kind of renting and then eventually they bought our own home which was in this beautiful neighborhood um, it's a suburb of the capital of Trinidad a suburb of Port of Spain it's called St. Anne's well there's sort of two linked neighborhoods St. Anne's Cascade um, we bought a house in St. Anne's and it's this sort of lush valley quite a beautiful setting even though it's very urban it doesn't or certainly at that point it was a bit less developed then it didn't feel um very urban you've kind of had these very lush this very kind of lush valley up the hillside and our Mm. house was um on this really steep road that kind of went up into into the hills of St. Anne's and the the house kind of sat on all and these stilts were sort of many leveled um you kind of came in on a ground floor on one level and you were out on you know second floor up on the by the time Mm -hmm. you got to the other side of the house and the garden wasn't very developed when mum and dad bought it. I can't remember. It was pretty much, a you know, just scrubland, really. Um, the kind of plot of land that came with the house. And it was a, it was a pretty sizable plot. And we just really got into planting it up. Um, and at weekends, I would go to plant nurseries with my parents. That was one of my favorite things to do. I must have been such a geek as a child. <laughs> 
people around the kind of nurseries and I would just love it you know and I would want to choose the the kind of I would always look for the strangest things the things that weren't common in other people's gardens the kind of unusual um and I remember us planting up this garden and by the time I left to go for university it was really beautiful really beautiful and lush um tropical garden that they kind of created that we'd created I suppose um and yeah then I left when I was 19 for university came to England um which we will talk about but I found there's something that you wrote in your book I hope you don't mind me quoting um it was about so this family home that you've been describing which your parents worked hard for and the way you talk about it there was this pride of owning your own home and having this this garden and then a few years after you left they sold the family home and that was in part to fund your studies and to create they sold it for more than they bought it for so it freed up some sort of future inheritance for you yeah and what you what you've written here is that the beautiful forever home with the lush garden on the green hillsides of the Cascade Valley was gone consumed by the greed of my ambitions and I wonder how you feel about that now this idea of ambition and career and progression Mm. over place and home yes that is a really good question because it's a complicated notion isn't it like it was definitely the driving force behind a lot of the movement that happened um in my life but also in my parents lives actually um you know I don't think I'm pretty sure my dad's parents didn't go to university for example um but his mum was very driven that her kids would have the best and have good careers and would kind of progress in their lives um and so a lot most of her children if not all of them went to university in the U.S. Um, and my so my dad went to university in the U.S. and spent 10 years living over there Um, and also my my mum you know she was very bright I think she won a scholarship um, to do her degree and her degree was in Jamaica so actually when I was just about one because she had me partway through her master's um, degree she left to go back to Jamaica to complete her degree. And I was kind of looked after by my grandmother until she kind of came back at the end of that academic year. And I've had a lot of therapy (laughs) about that early separation, um, which, you know, was not because, you know, no failing on the part of my mother. She's a devoted mother and she loves me very much. But that early separation, caused a, a rift in, in my psyche as a young baby whose mum went away absolutely thinking that she was doing the best thing for her family you know the best thing for her was to follow her ambitions and to progress and to you know um get the best kind of career that she could mm. and in one way that's been completely true I mean both of my parents from coming from pretty humble backgrounds have done incredibly well for themselves and you know like that house they bought it I think it was like for sale by auction from probably a relationship that fell apart so they they got it quite cheap um but it was in a really lovely location (laughs) the land ended up being worth quite a lot of money um and it needed quite a lot of work doing and I think in the end they sort of felt the risk of investing in it was more than they wanted to take also given the fact that if they sold it they would have been able to get a much bigger sum of money than they had um bought it for and that that would sort of have cured a lot of financial concerns you know at the time I didn't know a lot of this I was Mm. I mean I was an adult at that point I was off at university but um I was not involved in in their um in their concerns and worries and and stuff about about all of that and so they did what they thought was the best thing at that point in time um and sold the house and certainly in some ways that's been an amazing decision for us like 
they still live in Trinidad. I live here. They're getting older and um, my mum's got Parkinson's. And so, you know, there will be concerns about care needs in time. But certainly financially, they're okay. You know, so that's one worry that um, is sort of taken away from me, which is which is really helpful. But on the other hand, um, them selling that house that very much felt like home, I think is possibly one of the things that made it difficult for me to return, actually. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, I think if I was going to go back to Trinidad, because I wasn't going to be going back to that home that that sort of was the place that had felt like my sort of grounding, I guess, Um I'd be starting again, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be, mm. I'd be kind of starting it because they live in a different neighborhood now in a different part of the island, which isn't where I grew up. And it has become familiar from us kind of going back and visiting and all of that stuff, but it's not got that sense of, it's not got that sense. It's not got that real sense of, yes, I've come back home <laughs> when I'm in that neighborhood. Um, mm. I'm it very much as I'm visiting my parents' home. Um, rather than I've gone back to my home which is an interesting distinction and not one that I expected um it was just mm-hmm. one that I kind of realized as it as it happened yes a sense of of place a very physical place creating that that sense of home and belonging over yes. people and parents which is interesting yeah, I mean, I do feel, you know, it is very much about going home and I still call Trinidad home. <laughs> I still use the, the, I still use home for there um, as well as for, for here where we live now. Um, so there, you know, there is a sense of going home to see my loved ones, like absolutely. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was surprised when there was a period in my husband and um my life where we were thinking about where should we settle and and where should we where should we move back to and it's really interesting I think if my had my parents still been living in that house in Cascade um I think we might have made the leap (laughs) to go there and and use that as well because you would have needed some kind of physical stepping stone in the island while kind of sorting out um our own accommodation and schools and all of that kind of thing um and I think that would have made it that would have made the leap easier um, rather than facing a part of the island that I didn't know very well. <laughs> um, and so this was the conversation. This is sort of leaping forward to the point at which you decided to move to Somerset in the end. But yes. is this the point you're talking about? Yes. So you had children already. OK, so before we'll get to that, before we get to that, shall we talk about um, what it was like? when you moved to England so you moved to yeah England so I came study. at 19 came to university um and it's really funny I remember a lot of people telling me that I was really brave <laughs> to kind of leave my family behind and come to a place that I didn't really have any ties with um but I, that felt it felt expected I suppose I had grown up with an expectation that that's kind of what you would do you go away to university um and I had been quite kind of bright quite academically gifted as a child and so there was always this sense that even if it was unspoken I think there was always a sense that to fulfill my potential I would have to leave Trinidad um that that I'd have to go to something quote-unquote better than the island could offer so I never felt particularly brave <laughs> it just it just felt like I it just felt um like I was following almost a predestined pathway I guess you know that this is mm. this is what happened this is what you did if you were lucky enough and so I arrived I was at Cambridge and there were not many other <laughs> um black Caribbean students there there were a few and we had a we had a quite tight-knit little um society Caribbean society where we would all kind of meet up and do events and um I think get over some of our homesickness from contact with with one another but mostly I was just kind of resolutely determined to enjoy the experience um and I kind of threw myself into it really threw myself into 
eating at high table and going to the balls and I don't know, just sort of doing all the weird and wonderful English things, which I recognized as being weird and wonderful. Like I realized this wasn't real life, <laughs> this kind of rarefied uh, Cambridge undergraduate experience. So I just, I was pretty determined to enjoy it. That was, that was the attitude with which I, with which I came. Um, and then I transferred over to Oxford for the clinical part of my medical degree. And there I met my husband. <laughs> and I hadn't actually been intending to stay in England long term. England was very much, this is where I was coming to get my degree. And then I was going to leave, um, either to go to the US, because I have a lot of family who live there, or to go back to go back to the Caribbean um, and work in the kind of hospitals there. So I wasn't planning to stay. England, in terms of interacting with the institutions, was in some ways really unwelcoming. <laughs> There's no other, in fact, outright hostile, um, actually. Every time you had to do anything with a visa, it was really difficult and painful. And I remember you had to go to this centre down in South London, this really awful building where you just kind of felt like you were kind of cattle being herded through <laughs> these, you know, these kind of queues to get things done. It was, it was, you know, the whole physical setting of that room was was really mm. horrible. I remember taking my husband along for the first time when we got married and I had to kind of change my visa. And he was like, oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> you've had, this is where you've been, you've had to come all this time. I was like, yeah, yeah. It's not very nice. They don't treat us very nicely. Even things like trying to open a bank account when I first arrived as a student. Um, I had money that I wanted to put into a bank account and none of the banks would take my money. You know, there was only one in the end that would kind of let me open a student account. You know, so all of this, all of those things it made it feel quite clear that this country wasn't particularly receptive mm. to me. And so I wasn't really that, that bothered about staying. I wasn't intending to stay. And then rather inconveniently, I fell in love <laughs> um, <laughs> and thought, well, you know, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go and we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens from here. Yeah, so it's all his fault. <laughs> and um, so you fell in love with Ollie, yes. who you'd gone to marry. And at that stage, when you realised it was serious and it was a long-term relationship, did you have conversations about where you'd live or was it assumed that you would stay in England? Oh, at that stage, it really then became about um, career. <laughs> and, right. you know, the kind, of, the kind of driving force. And in medical training, you do move around a lot. Um, you follow the jobs, basically, as they come up. And so... It was a really itinerant kind of lifestyle where you're sort of moving from one job to another. Pretty much every four to six months, you move around. And if you're lucky, they're within close geographical proximity. So you might not have to change your actual place of accommodation. But, you know, there were definitely points in which we were living, we were working on different sides of the country, actually. Um, and kind of living in between or commuting back and forth to see one another. Mm. so there was no real thought in my mind about settling and and physically or geographically at that point really um I was kind of tethered to Ollie you know I was in love and we we had a we kind of had a lovely developing relationship we got married but it was only when we eventually had children and we had a bit of a journey to have children, kind of had five years of trying for my son before he arrived. So it was only then that I really started to feel this intense pull to settle down and to have something that felt like a home. And it was only actually in that feeling that I realized the absence of feeling as though I'd had a home or a sense of home beforehand you know I, I hadn't been distressed by the kind of um nomadic <laughs> life that we'd had before it felt you know it felt it was quite normal for medicine mm. you know um in some ways it was a bit fun we you know we lived in some fun places or you know some quirky kind of rented 
places here and there you know it didn't I didn't realize that I was missing a sense of that until I found myself kind of pregnant and just um really kind of surprised by this deep urge to feather a nest you know to just kind of settle down and feel feel at home and feel a sense of belonging in fact I remember we were living in this we lived in this little stretch of muse houses so these kind of 10 tiny tiny terraced houses this is where we lived in Oxford and actually the house that we moved from uh, when I kind of where the book kind of starts the house that we moved from tiny terraced place no kind of gardens or anything but it was these 10 houses all adjacent to each other and I was pregnant with my son and I kind of realized that I only knew maybe two of our neighbors <laughs> in this stretch of 10 houses right. and so I remember well, I organized a Christmas party because I kind of thought I'm going to be here on maternity leave and I don't know these people and you know um there's no community <laughs> and I suddenly felt a real need for that a real need to belong to a place and to a community of people and so invited slipped invitations through everyone's door and that was the first time we met lots of lots of our neighbors who we'd been living in quite close proximity for for you know quite quite some time um so it was you know, definitely having kids that brought that age on for me you describe in your book about the point so your mum and dad were living in new york when your mum became pregnant with you yes her first and only child and she was pulled back to Trinidad for the birth yeah so my dad so my dad was in New York at the time and he and mum got married out there and um I think he would have really wanted her to stay you know he had a promising career at the time I think and was loving being in New York City and had a green card and kind of thought that would be a wonderful life <laughs> but for whatever reasons and I still don't really know actually my mum's not talked about it very much but she felt really drawn back to Trinidad and she came back to Trinidad to have me um I, th I think at, you know at some degrees pregnant that they wouldn't let you fly now <laughs> I think she's very heavily pregnant I um, were really last minute really last minute yeah and returned and had me in Trinidad um and kind of insisted I think <laughs> that my father follow her and return to Trinidad which he did um and so that's where you know that's where I was born and that's where my my kind of childhood happened but it could have mm. been quite different could have gone the other way we could have settled in in the U.S. um and did yeah. you did you ever have that same feeling when you became pregnant, pulling hmm. you back in a way? That's interesting. I I don't recall that. No, I don't remember being drawn back to Trinidad when I was pregnant. I do recall really wanting my mother <laughs> when I had a baby. Um once I kind of had a newborn baby, just a real urge of wanting to be mothered um, mm. and be held as I was kind of holding this, this little baby. And so I missed her hugely at that point. And then I had my daughter. She came along fairly soon after. And so I had these two babies. And yeah, that was the real point at which I started longing for my mother and kind of realizing then, I suppose, how wonderful a setup my childhood was with the kind of extended family all around, actually, and how how much that must have held my mother. Yeah. <laughs> Having her parents and her kind of siblings who were, you know, they adored me and you know there were all these teenage aunties and uncles who were kind of around to help with the baby um I realized how different my situation was in a kind of tiny nuclear family setup here in England without that kind of extended family network and was your mum able to come over at all she did yeah she did come over um she was still working at that point when my two were very little so she couldn't come for massively extended periods of time and when I had my first 
I was reluctant to leave Ollie for too long. <laughs> so I went home in that first maternity leave just for a cup just for a couple of weeks, I think. By the time I then had two small babies, <laughs> I went back to Trinidad for a rather longer period of time and stayed mm. for stayed for a few months actually in that second maternity leave which was lovely and helpful um, so I had a bit more of that when I had my second matrescence early early motherhood my second mm. baby but it's I, de- I definitely think oh I mean it affected me profoundly you know like I write in the book about a period where I think I went a little bit what I think what I call a focused form of madness and I ended up with about 100 house plants in a very short space of time and I think it was just a real longing to surround myself with a sense of home and with a sense of of my mother's like my mother and my grandmother mm-hmm. they both had houseplants that was you know a thing that they both kind of did and looked after and so I think just kind of filling our home those familiar tropical plants felt like a way of of bringing something of home to mm-hmm. a point when I really really needed it yeah when you had had gone back to Trinidad with your two babies and stayed for a couple of months how did you feel as the trip was ending and you were coming back to England? There were a lot of tears. <laughs> there, were, there were definitely a lot of tears. It wasn't an easy parting, no. The decision to not settle out there wasn't one that happened lightly, actually. It involved a lot of thought around... You know, we had a trip out that wouldn't have been that maternity leave would have been a couple of years later. Actually, my daughter would have been about three, I think, when we did this. We kind of had a trip out where we really we we kind of realized that we've been going to Trinidad and in a way treating it like a holiday, which had been delightful but without any kind of real sense of what it would be like to live here day to day, you know, where would we live? Where would children go to school? How what would our commute to work look like? You know, all of the, all of those nuts and bolts of an everyday life that make a life feel good or be massively stressful. <laughs> and so we took a trip out there to look at exactly that sort of thing. And that's when I had this real realization that actually the childhood that I'd had was very much not the childhood that a lot of my school friends' children, you know, they were not having that kind of childhood. Um, And I sort of realized that everyone was living in these gated communities. You know, I'd grown up with this real sense of safety and freedom, actually. You know, we kind of had grown up in this tight-knit neighborhood where all the adults knew each other and we, the children, knew all the grown-ups on our street and the kind of streets around and so you'd be out playing as a group of children together but you know if anything ever happened you just went to the nearest house <laughs> and you'd be taken care of because that mm. adult knew you and you you knew them and you know there was always there wasn't a sense of being watched over in an intense helicopter sense actually we felt as though we were unsupervised but we clearly were because if any misdemeanor happened, it got back to your adults quite quickly. <laughs> so, you know, clearly adults were keeping an eye, but at a kind of safe enough distance that we felt quite free in the way that we were able to play. And I went home and realized, you know, when I kind of was looking at could we move back, realized that that was not the case anymore at all. My friends all felt trapped, actually. They felt kind of locked up into their gated communities or behind these really high gates and I realized that the kind of sense of safety on the island in terms of levels of violent crime had changed profoundly since I was a child and you know lots of other things as well the kind of there was always wealth inequality in the island from when I was a child but it had escalated massively so that actually the kind of neighborhoods that I was lucky enough to grow up in I don't even think my husband and I could have afforded to buy (laughs) a home in them you know and so where we would have been able to live and the kind of life that we would have been able to have felt really different from what I'd imagined a life back in Trinidad could be and I sort of you know the idea of taking I sort of realized that in a way as well yeah the idea of, of taking my kids home and putting them at kind of risk in terms of their personal safety. It just didn't feel right. Didn't feel like the right decision. 
And then also at the same time, my husband's father got a um, serious diagnosis of cancer. And so staying here also felt very much like the right thing to do um, at that point in time. So lots of things kind of came together to kind of shape our decision at that point. And then in terms of landing in this particular house, um, the universe did that thing where lots of things kind of line up <laughs> at the same time. My husband got a job offer and they wanted him to start and his father got his diagnosis and um, we kind of said, well, let's just take a day and kind of look at houses. And this house was available and it was in our budget and they wanted to move out right away. And I don't know, there were just, there were, there were lots of other things, lots of things kind of happened all at once. And I kind of thought, well, this just feels like a clear, <laughs> a, a clear direction. <laughs> I feel like we were being given a clear instruction that this was the next step that we needed, that we needed to take. Um, and so we did. And it was the garden that you fell in love with. It was absolutely the garden <laughs> that I fell in love with. I can barely remember much about the house from that kind of first viewing, actually. I mean, you know, it, it, it was nice. It felt nice and cozy um, and quaint. But it was definitely the garden that I remember kind of falling in love with. Um, and, you know, it, it's so funny the way that our minds work. But... At that point in time, I did not consciously realize, but, you know, looking back, I realized that the thing that I think really got me was that this, the topography of this garden and the way that the house sits in it is really similar to that house that my parents bought as our like family home um, in St. Anne's Cascade when I, um, well, when I was in my kind of early teens in Trinidad you know they it's it's so similar steeply sloping it had the same kind of big bamboo grove up in the back of it um which we've since removed because it's i meant it was a menace but um you know the house sitting on across many levels um with a with a deck like we had a balcony there was just something so familiar to my unconscious I think <laughs> about the way this house sits in this place it's a you know it's a steep it's a valley this house sits in a valley and they're all the kind of my neighbor has a small wood so there's this real sense of lush, lots of lush trees around so I think it just evoked hugely for me a sense of home you know I think it, it spoke to a sense of home that I had left when I was 19 and then had kind of lost while I was away and didn't really understand that I was looking for <laughs> until I landed here and kind of I think felt it just just this place just resonated with that um and so yeah we kind of put an offer in immediately and we're blown away <laughs> to have it kind of accepted and we were we were in within two months um so it all happened really, really quickly once once we took the leap. And you started to develop a relationship with the land and the garden. And as an adult, we're visiting the plant nurseries that you visited, as you said earlier, with your yeah. parents. But then three months after you moved, we went into lockdown. We did. Yes, because we moved here in um just before Christmas of 2019. Um and yeah, by the March, <laughs> we were we were all in we were all in lockdown. And so, you know, I think we tend to, when you move to a new place, you often think of settling into a new place and getting to know a place and belong to a place in terms of human relationships, you know, which makes a ton of sense. That's how we often see the world and um and we had started kind of you know meeting people settling into the community it was a really it's a very friendly and sociable extremely sociable um community and had been very very welcoming but all of that was just suddenly stripped away um by lockdown and because we'd been here for such a short period of time those relationships weren't as yet you know they weren't very well developed and so I felt really isolated <laughs> profoundly isolated but in a way it was a gift actually because what I ended up doing then 
was developing a relationship with the place itself, with the garden, with the land, you know, with the actual sense of place, spirit of place, you know, the kind of actual, yeah, the spirit of this place, I suppose. That is something that I think I probably would not have done if times had been more normal in, in mm. you know, quote unquote. Um, and so, yeah, I was sort of really kind of forced into it in a way, but um, it became such a comfort and more than a comfort it became really necessary actually to my coping um and my sort of managing with with that time with that whole I mean it was more than a few months wasn't it because there was just lockdown after lockdown so it's definitely for the next couple of years of my life I would say the relationship with the garden was just really in an integral part of my kind of coping and well-being but um yeah I was out there every day in the place just sort of being with it and getting to know it kind of listening to it um and developed what really felt like a reciprocal relationship with the garden actually um a real kind of sense of it welcoming me into this place um and that it was sort of pretty happy with my interventions you know as I kind of started gardening totally by instinct because I have no you know I I gardened with my parents in that garden in the Caribbean but that that was untaught that was just us kind of buying things and planting and and I suppose I thought because it was a such a different climate that maybe things didn't transfer but of course they do actually you know um once you come you know you have to understand your place your kind of soil and climate and kind of what's going on but once you get a once you spend enough time in it and start to get a sense of that you know a lot of it's the a lot of it's the kind of same in terms of nurturing and tending tending a place sounds like you also started to draw parallels and to see signs of your family in Trinidad in your garden but there's one passage um I'd love to read that is I found really sad to read where you've discovered a black currant plant mm. and it reminds you of home in Trinidad and you've said I cannot yet bear to let myself feel the full meaning of being so split off from my family and the beloved landscape of my birth we settled in this home with the firm understanding that there would be regular trips back to Trinidadian landscape that feels a vital part of me. The idea of two homes has always kept me split, but the door to one is firmly shut now. I do not know what that will do to me. Mm. And yeah. it's the sense of you found something that is this connection and bridge. And then also the pandemic has just shut the door on being able to flow between. Yes. I mean, that was, that was a really profoundly devastating time. <laughs> it was the first time that I had ever felt properly cut off from home. Um, and, you know, that's really lucky. I've always I've been lucky enough to be able to go back to Trinidad about once a year, which, you know, because my parents are there and my, my kind of family is there. And so that's always been very kind of important and and. Um, I felt really lucky to be able to do that because it's expensive <laughs> but you know we've, we've we've sort of managed and my parents have often come up you know so they would tend to come up in the summer and we would tend to go home at another point in time so keeping that connection and keeping that relationship with Trinidad has been there all my life and has always felt all my life in England and has always felt quite kind of necessary and if I let it go too long in between visits I I would feel it <laughs> I would I would really kind of feel it and, and miss it and know that I was due back I was due back in Trinidad and yeah when the when the pandemic happened and Trinidad dealt with it brilliantly it locked its doors very firmly um and kept its citizens really safe for a very long time um you know I've sort of found this tiny article where it was voted like the number one best country in its response to COVID-19 in terms of um yeah. keeping its citizens safe and well you know it, it did a, it did a phenomenal job but <laughs> that meant that we were quite profoundly cut off from Trinidad and of course at that point really early on 
there was no sense of how long this would last and you know and in a way I didn't know if I would ever see home again you know there, there was this kind of sense of will will this pass what what will this do to the world um and of course the fear of what would it do to my parents and would they get ill and would I be able to to see them again um you know that was all very alive in my mind I suppose at the time um and so yes I had to deal with so there was a simultaneous dealing with kind of this place that we had bought and chosen as our kind of home but that suddenly being made much more profound and final in a way <laughs> than I had even necessarily realized that I was hedging bets. You know, I it suppose I hadn't realized that a bit of me was probably hedging my bets in a way. And actually it was like, no, that's it. You're here now. This is, this is where you are. And you have to come to terms with that and make sense of that. Um, and come to some kind of acceptance and reckoning with that. And so I think that underlying sense of what I kind of needed to do if I was going to feel okay being here in the context of, of, of all of that. And also this sense of how familiar the garden felt. I became really curious about that. And I was like, why does this place feel so familiar <laughs> when it's a place that I, you know, I don't know here. I don't know this village before we kind of moved here. It's, you know, I don't know this garden, but somehow there's a real feel of familiarity here. So what is that? What is it evoking in my memory? What, what are the links? Why, what, what on earth might be the link between, you know, this kind of English garden in Somerset and um my childhood in Trinidad and so that's really the kind of thinking that kind of led to that ended up um leading to the book actually kind of exploring those those links as I kind of made sense of them and realizing that you know there were the kind of personal things that I mentioned you know the kind of recognition of how this topography and this house sitting in this topography was so kind of redolent of the kind of home that I had um, in Trinidad. And, you know, plants would come up and they would do that wonderful thing that I think, you know, it's it's like, it's the way smell works, you know, smell has this direct link to a center of our, the center of our brain actually, right in the middle. Um, but it's also very, it's very linked to memory and to the bits of our brain that deal with memory and that deal with emotion, you know, so, a scent can take you right back to a place that you've been before um, in a very powerful way. And it felt like the plants were doing that for me as well, actually, that there was something in um, interacting with them that were bringing these very strong links to memories with Trinidad and to kind of feelings and themes um, that felt kind of really familiar um, and so working in the garden was also working through all of that. <laughs> and then realizing that actually there were much bigger themes about why this felt um, so familiar. And, you know, that was colonialism. You know, all these kind of plants in my so-called English country garden, um, and none of them were English. <laughs> actually, they're all, they've, they've all been imported here many of them during the same colonial you know, period of empire, many of them along the exact same trade routes that people were brought on. I was really fascinated by the story of wisteria. We've got a big, beautiful wisteria covering our wonderful English country cottage, which is very lucky. But, um, you know, wisteria came to England on one of the East India trade company's ships. <laughs> it was actually brought in on one of their ships. Um, by the director of tea and you know I think within a couple of years of wisteria landing in England was around exactly that time that they were then called Royal Botanic Gardens I think they've dropped the Royal in Trinidad now but you know it was called the Royal Botanic Gardens in Trinidad were planted up and developed with you know plants imported along those same colonial trade routes and you know the Botanic Garden was a source of research for plants that you could use on the plantations and you know 
the the the, the ties between my garden and my childhood gardens I realized were kind of very profound actually and they went far beyond the personal you know they kind of resonated a lot with these political themes that are really live for us today and really important actually because you know one of the things that you realize as a psychotherapist is um if we don't face a trauma you know if we don't look at something painful and difficult that's happened to us um we're condemned to repeat it <laughs> we were doomed to just keep repeating the same mistakes not in exactly the same way you know it'll it'll but but the same patterns the same the same mistaken patterns of behavior we're just doomed to repeat until we can actually sit down and face it and reckon with it and accept it and kind of do that do that work and just kind of looking at the world around me you know it's like we're just stuck in the same in the same patterns um which were, which felt like they were growing around me in the garden you know the kind of bridges and, and links between them mm. something that i um found so beautifully peppered throughout your book was the reference to Ollie as home. Mm. So you mentioned that the really difficult time during the pandemic lockdowns when you're at home on your own with the children homeschooling and Ollie would be going off to work in a hospital um, and you'd have these long days in this new place with, with your children and then Ollie would return home and you said you would fall back into the home of each other. I thought that was such a beautiful line. And then again, in the acknowledgements, you say that Ollie's heart is home. Mm. And so I wondered how important Ollie is in making you feel at home. Oh, he's crucial. <laughs> he's absolutely crucial, I think. Um, and yeah, you know, that whole, that whole, that whole saying, home is where the heart is, um, which I think is, is so true really um very very true yeah our hearts are linked (laughs) it sounds so cheesy to be saying it but it really does it really does feel that way and you know my I have this there was this lovely story which you probably heard I think I might have said it at um the talk at Froome but do bear with me repeating it but um you know I'd kind of just I'd handed in the final proofs of the book was feeling really pleased with myself um and all four of us were driving off somewhere I think we'd been to visit my in-laws or something and we were in the car coming coming back and my son said um just kind of out of the blue like kids do he's like oh mommy um I think I know what home means and I was like oh do you that's nice we're thinking gosh I've just written a whole book about it but you know tell me tell me what does home mean he was like home you're at home when you're with the people that you love and who love you. And I thought, gosh, that is, that is it. That is so very true, actually. And yeah, Ollie definitely holds a sense of home for me, I think, in a really kind of um, profound, profound way. And I think in a way, wherever we found ourselves, we'd be able to make ourselves at home which is which is which is a lovely and comforting idea actually my mum told me her mum was from Ireland but lived um raised her children in England London and my mum said that her mum always referred to Ireland as home so when she was going maybe once a year she'd say I'm going home Mm. and my mum as a child wanted for London to be home because it's where she and uh, my mum's siblings were and I've always found that idea quite interesting. So what your son has described is a, a good reminder, I think, that uh, where our children are and our, and our partner and the the new younger family that we have. Yeah. But it also doesn't remove that tie to home as as a different place or home as the mother, your, your mother, your parents, where uh, the people who raised you. Oh, definitely. And I think that is 
why I carry this kind of split sense of home you know I do still refer to going to Trinidad going to Trinidad as going home but I very much refer to here as home <laughs> as mm. well <laughs> which you know my my the kids do actually joke about and get a bit like if we're you know when we are traveling to Trinidad and on back and you know I'll be like oh we're flying home tomorrow and they're like but we're at home mummy and I'm like oh yes <laughs> yes the other home <laughs> yeah. I love you we'll come back to this home and you know <laughs> and they they laugh but I think that's because they also carry a sense of when they are with their grandparents in Trinidad that that is home you know that is very much a home for them as well so I think Mm. I think they, they understand mm. <laughs> um, but I I get the impression for them that it doesn't feel like a painful split which is wonderful mm. um, and I think for me for a long time it did feel like a painful split which I think came from a sense of not belonging and you know feeling when I moved to when I came to England the sense of not belonging was fairly kind of obvious, you know, the cause for it was fairly obvious, the kind of racism and xenophobia of the English state towards um towards people. And I definitely for me it felt much more significant in terms of my relationships with the institutional, much more so than you know, personal, personal affronts, individual relationship racist incidents as it were they mm. have actually been happening all my life because Trinidad has a racist incidents as it were they mm. have actually been happening all my life because Trinidad has a racist incidents as it were they mm. have actually been happening all my life because Trinidad has a fraught history you know of course it does um as a previous as a former colony um but when after the abolition of slavery so of course you had all the you had all the indigenous original population who were mostly kind of wiped out um by the spanish when they came although not completely and you know great acts of resistance <laughs> were carried out but you know um eventually their population was decimated and then you had the enslaved people from Africa kind of brought in and then slavery was abolished and then actually in Trinidad you had a large population of indentured laborers from India brought in so modern Trinidad um there's an almost even split between people of African Caribbean descent and people of Indian Caribbean descent as well as some various other ethnic groups as well whites and Chinese and um uh you know other other groups it's quite a there's quite a heterogeneous mix mm. um but those two particular groups they carry quite a degree of racial tension between them um like the two major political parties are split on along racial lines for instance mm. um and also colorism exists in the island as well um just to just to add <laughs> just to add to the complex mix of the ways in which we have been taught not to love ourselves um so you know getting getting racist slights of one kind or another you know even from being young and having comments about the fact that it was good in invaded commas that I'm fair-skinned but how terrible it is that my hair is so kinky it just just really really complex mix of messages um that meant that I loved Trinidad deeply I still you know I loved Trinidad really profoundly but was left with a really confused sense of belonging actually um and I think that might have been a mix of you know this kind of constant movement actually um you know the kind of my parents having been away and that was where you were meant to to get a better life was was away and you know the kind of expectation that I would leave one day to pursue a, a quote-unquote better life and but also knowing that so many of my ancestors had come from lots of different places and I think it's not uncommon for a Trinidadian to have quite a mixed background but I think I sit um, possibly as a kind of extreme of that in terms of how many different 
places of uh, parts of the world um, that ancestors have come from. And so one of the kind of things that you would hear on the street and in kind of arguments between people of different backgrounds was, you know, a kind of common slay that people would hail is um, go back where you come from. Um, and hearing that as a child, I would, you know, I used to have this really visceral image of my body being kind of split into different parts <laughs> and different limbs maybe going back to different places you know which bit of me would go back to Africa which bit of me would go off to China which bit of me would go off to Europe Portugal and Ireland and wherever you know wherever else and which bit of me if any because at that stage I didn't there was a suspicion in the family that we had a kind of indigenous um ancestor but that was very much denied by my grandmother. There was a sense of shame at that point in the island of being of indigenous extraction, um, which has changed actually. And there's there's a reclamation of that since, and, and you know, a real kind of sense of pride now. I think um, in the communities of people who are descended from and have a kind of stronger link with their kind of ancestry of um the indigenous people of the caribbean but you know at that point it you know my grandmother's sense of shame i don't think was terribly terribly uncommon and so she kind of she denied it um but i kind of i kind of clung to the idea of the fact that i that we were sure that that there was because her features were very strongly carib was the kind of team that we used in the island then um and so I kind of clung to the idea that I must be Trinidadian, I must belong here, um, because I'm pretty sure that I have an Indigenous ancestor. And that that would surely answer the kind of confusing question of belonging and where do I come from and where would I go back to if I had to go back where mm. I'd come from. Um, but I, th I think it was that fraught sense of never feeling really sure. <laughs> um, about where I belonged that kind of created this sort of painful split and the idea of of home and where home might be and actually what I would what I really long to give my kids and I think what's been a kind of big motivating factor in this whole journey of home and um putting down roots and and settling somewhere is to give them a sort of unquestioned sense of belonging mm. um you know that actually they inherently are worthy of belonging um in in the place that they choose to make their home really because you know humans are a pretty mobile species we move around a lot um you know the idea that we might just settle in one geographical place for a very long time um seems tricky in this modern world yeah. actually yeah. um so really what I would love for them to have is an internal sense of the idea of home and of belonging that might make whatever journeys that they end up having to make in their life feel feel okay you know and that and, and that they would have a sense of of being able to feel to make themselves at home in a community um and feel that they belong that it doesn't feel fraught for them and how do you feel in that regard in terms of where you're living now internally um yeah I think that my relationship with this garden has um has healed a lot of that split for me actually um I think kind of working out a lot of the the kind of links and the parallels between the Caribbean and hair and kind of understanding how profound the relationship is between the two places actually like I mean I knew it cognitively from history lessons but you know I sort of developed a felt sense of it I think um a real visceral embodied sense of it mm. from being in relationship with the garden and working the soil and and being with the plants um and kind of realizing that actually, you know, even stepping beyond that and stepping beyond the kind of invented boundaries of like nation states, <laughs> which are meaningless, um, 
that really just as a human animal of this planet you know my belonging is quite profound um you know the earth loves us <laughs> and actually really wants us to be here and to be in relationship with it um as really important species of the ecosystems that we're that we're kind of part of um so I think that's kind of more profound understanding of my belonging in that sense, you know, has helped a lot in kind of putting into perspective um, ideas about visas and, <laughs> you know, kind of Englishness or, or not, um, that, that kind of thing. So that, that's been really, really helpful. I think for resolving that for me um and for making me feel as though actually I can be at home you know I can be at home in a place um and that might be here and that might be Trinidad um one day because I am an only child with aging parents um who still live back in Trinidad so there may well be a future point in which a return feels like um the right and necessary thing to do for our family but you know who knows I mean the one the, the, this the, I sort of carried this feeling all along but the one thing that that COVID year really showed us was who knows <laughs> what will happen in the future mm -hmm. actually never say never <laughs> thank you so much that feels like a nice uh, open end <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. For more of Marcel's brilliance, you can buy her book, Uprooting, linked in the show notes, as well as following her on Instagram. Her handle is also linked in the show notes. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.